Listening Dog Media. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. I just love the radio. I loved being around Radio 1. I loved being in the studio. I loved doing, doing what, what I knew I, knew I could, could do. I never thought of myself as a rule breaker, but I have definitely blazed my own path, as anyone should. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. I think it's essential because you really care about not missing stuff. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I got to the station and I just, I was like, I just want to be the best. I just want to be the best I can be. And they have really, really helped me. And I just, I just love it. I love my job. And for this episode, a Virgin Radio DJ. Every time I turn up at my job, I'm present and I'm aware of what an incredible time it is to be at Virgin Radio. She presented the ozone on top of the pops. I was holding the microphone, which is gold, and I was so nervous that you'd say my hand was shaking. And we once presented a show together on Six Music. Welcome to How to DJ, my lovely friend, Jay Middlemiss. Chris, it's so beautiful to see you, man. I just, I, I haven't seen you for too long. I just, I it's, it's just not, you know, you moved us to Manchester, we lost touch. I just adore you. It all feels like a, a long time ago, another lifetime in some ways, doesn't it? It is another lifetime ago. I mean, it's yeah. so much has changed in that time. I, I think I am, you know, they say your molecules completely change in your body every seven years. So that's like, I've got to be like three different people by now. Yeah, that's a lot of molecules. That is a lot of molecules. Jane, when was your first taste of fame? Crikey. The very first time, I think, was at Razamataz. Uh, in ITV, I went to the studios. There used to be this TV show called Razamataz at Time Tees, and it was like a pop show. And somebody called Alistair presented it, and he was very famous in, in, New in Newcastle. And I went into the audience, and I watched, there were like various 80s bands performing. Depeche Mode were there, and I saw the back of my head on camera. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> what so from that moment you wanted to be famous i wanted to be famous from much 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 younger than that i always I, it was something i grew up in a mining village in northumberland and back then there was you know we did not have things i mean we didn't even have a a, a phone when i grew up you know so we were really cut off so the one thing that i had as a connection to the outside world was TV and the radio, the radio specifically, because I was obsessed with music. I mean, I used to get up 
an hour before I would get up about an hour before the radio started, which was about five in the morning, right? Because radio used to stop. And so I could turn on the radio and listen to it from 5 a.m. and then go to school. I was obsessed, obsessed. And I used to have a little radio station in my bedroom called Radio JM. And you know, I used to do the discos in my flat and Hampstead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say fond memories, but I'm not sure that they all were. Um, what, what music were you into then as a kid? Well, it was always my dad's record collection. You know, from the age of six, there was a gram in the front room, you know, one of those old fashioned grams. And my dad really liked music. So it was like things like he was like, you know, 50s, like a 50s teenager. So there was things like Buddy Holly, Beach Boys. Then there was like Bob Dylan. Then there was Simon and Garfunkel. Then there was a bit of Mario Lanza. Then and, and so it was really a and then the Bachelor Boys and Bobby V. So there was a lot of like fifties rock and roll influences, and also, you know, so it was always like this. But it wasn't until and I loved Bob Dylan still to this day. I love Bob, Bob Dylan, but it wasn't until I got my own little tape recorder when I was six for Christmas because you know my my parents saw I was into music. And the first ever uh, cassette I owned was the Beatles. And I think that was that was it for me. And then I knew that I could have something of my own. And then I became into it. And I think then I got obsessed with chart music and the charts. And I taped the charts every weekend. Oh, shut up! <laughs> you know, cause, cause you pause and record. Pause and record. Shut up! They shut up! <laughs> uh, where did you buy music from? Was there a record shop that you used to go to? There was a record shop in Bedlinton, which is where I grew up, called The Music Box. And when I was about, I think I was about 10, 9 or 10, the first single I ever bought was The Police, Don't Stand So Close To Me. And every single weekend from that point, I was in there buying music, just buying singles. And it was all chart music, you know, and 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 then I would just, you know, go to my bedroom, lock myself in there and play music. I mean, I was really geeky now, looking back. I never quite understood this about myself, but I think I was quite masculine, if you like. Is that the word? You know how men, back in the day, it was sort of seen as a male thing, that boys were into music and they were really... Whereas boys would all be very confused with me because they would try and, like think I didn't know anything about music and then I'd just bang him with something in the face because I know quite a bit about music. <laughs> and did you go clubbing as you got older in Newcastle? I mean, I was a massive wild. I was completely wild. You know, I moved to London when I was 18. I, were, I dropped out of school when I was 15. I was clubbing. You know, I was in pubs at like 13, clubs at 50. I was, I was wild. You know, I just wanted... I wanted drama i wanted to be in the place where music was loud and everything was dark and everything looked sexy and i could live in an episode of dynasty and you know it was it was like that it was the 80s i used to go clubbing and boil gowns you know and tiaras and so because i was underage you know it was, it was clubs like tuxedo princess in newcastle uh, which had a revolving dance floor. I'm not sure that was ever a good idea in Newcastle with the amount of drink people consume. But I used to love Tux too because it was slightly more upmarket. I used to fancy me sellers, you know, a bit upmarket. And I would just sit there and they had phones on the table. People could ring uh, each other on the tables. And that was like, that was literally like high tech. 
So yeah, I was clubbing every single weekend, sometimes twice a week. And the studio as well, the studio. And at that time, did you have any idea what you might do for a job? What, what kind of career you wanted to pursue? Well, at that time, I think I had grown up in a time where it was all about, you know, if you looked at on TV, it was all about girls being pretty and women didn't really have roles that were fronting things. I mean, it has taken me this long in my career to realise I can... I wanted to be a DJ because I didn't see anybody doing it. Anybody that I thought I could be like that because there was nobody like me. You know, I was from a mining village. I was really working class. My dad was a miner. Everybody was Southern. Everybody was middle class. They were mainly predominantly male. You know, they had these booming voices and they had been there for like 30 years. They were the establishment. So to me, that was not something I could ever do. So... When I was growing up, I saw girls on TV who were dolly birds, if you like. That was the role. So I thought, right, I'm going to be a model. That's obviously what you do. And so I moved to London to become a model, and that's what I did. And I was really not good at it because I'm too... Models are meant to be quiet and pretty and did it. Yeah, no, I'm just not... <laughs> and I would just be mouthy and like, wah, and, you know, but um, I don't know if I'm mouthy. I think I'm just confident. And then I sort of very quickly at, at 21, I got very bored with that and then moved into TV. You were successful as a model though, weren't you? I was quite. I was a bit successful. I wouldn't say, I, you know, I, th- I always had other jobs as a model. I was never sort of, it was never paying my main wage. When I was modelling, I was also sort of working the perfume counters in John Lewis and places like this. I was a very good salesperson because, you know, that is pretty much our job, right? That's, yeah. It's just glorified sales <laughs> with music. Yeah. It's brilliant. But, you know, <laughs> that's it. So, um, and, and also, you know, you're behind a counter, it's, you're on stage and, you know. So it was always, uh, everything was a stage to me back then, every every opportunity. So what, TV followed the modelling rather than radio? Yes. I started working behind the scenes in TV. So I got, I was, I started at the White Room. There was this music show called The White Room on Channel 4. And I worked there, I was a nanny at the time, and I worked there as a work experience girl. And it was all like, you know, it was all the, the guys who had made the tube. So it was like Geordie Mafia. And so they just like took care of me and sort of like, you know, every single week I would be doing different things in that sort of like in the realm. I, one week I'd be in the, you know, in the gallery with the director, Jeff Wonfell, who's the, one of the greatest music directors of TV who has ever lived. And that was incredible. And then the other week I would be sort of delivering towels to artists, dressing rooms, looking at making sure they were fine. And, and and then I sort of just did that until I got my first paid job at GMTV. And at the same time, I was doing bits and pieces. So I was trying to get on TV. And I remember I got so fed up. I was at a party and Torby Anstis was there. Good old Torbs. And I remember I was like, I'm so not. And, it, and, and he said to me, he said, are you in TV? I said, I'm trying to get in there. And he said, all right, what size? And I said, production. And he went, all oh, right, that's a shame because there's a job going at the Ozone. I went, actually... <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so it was it was totally that quick. And and I got this job at GMTV and I had had a screen test with the Ozone and they had said, We like you, but we're not sure. So I went off and did GMTV. And then two weeks later they called me 
and said, listen, we're still really interested. And I went, mate, I've got a job now. I mean, how serious are you? And they were like, they were like completely shocked. They were like, this is an opportunity of lifetime. I said, seriously, I have been trying to get a job for like the last four years and I've just got one. You've got to be serious. So I told JMTV I had a dentist appointment, went to the Ozone, interviewed Gemini and I got the job. How did that feel? It felt very unreal. I, I didn't, because I was so young, and also back then I was incredibly insecure. I didn't really have the space to take it in that this was something that I've always wanted. I just had, I had imposter syndrome, if you like, for many, many years. And I always felt like how it felt was scary. And I remember there was a brilliant guy called Peter McHugh at GMTV and he was in charge. He, he was another Geordie, wasn't he? Yes. In my memory, right, I don't even know if this is true because you know how memories change and they're sort of like rough. And in my memory, he was smoking a cigar and he had his feet up on the desk. I'm not sure that happened, right? But that's what he, that's how it seems in my memory. You went, so I hear you're leaving. And I went, yeah. And he said, you got a better job. I went, it's not better, it's just different. And he went, hey, good for you, kid. I said, Peter, I'm really scared. He went, if it's not scary, it's not worth doing. And that was the piece of advice I've taken through my entire life. It makes me want to cry, actually, saying it back. I got to know Peter as well, because obviously Claire, my wife, worked for him. He was such a guy, and we've still got a, a bottle of whiskey that, that he gave to us as a, a gift many years ago, and he, he wrote on it, good luck to you guys, when we were moving to the north, and we've never opened it. Yeah, lovely guy. So a whole new world opened up for you then. Was it with Jamie Thixton straight away? Yes, because the Ozone had come through CBBC and so it had been quite like child, like kiddie. You know, it had been, you know, lots of boy bands and Andy Peters meeting, take that over and over again. And and I think they wanted to make it a little bit more grown up because to reflect what was happening in the music scene. And so, you know... I think Jamie was on board first and then I rock up and I have this sort of salubrious past, which they found out about, obviously, because the papers went, oh, do you know this? So I thought I was going to lose my job instantly. And I and they went, is there anything else? I went, no, that's it. And they were like, it's fine, like this. And I was like, oh my God. And I think that thing, it, it meant there was an edge. There, it meant that there was an edge and also that... I don't know. And then from that moment, because me and Jamie were both with it, we were the same age. We were both absolutely obsessed with music. We both knew our stuff and it just became something different. It became sort of quite, you know, that that movement of youth TV. And, you know, it, it was it was a really, really exciting. I mean, when I look back now, I can see all of those incredible experiences. I mean, I mean, I think I put them in a, a box marked, you know, do not open because, you know, people, I always felt I couldn't talk about certain things or I wouldn't be accepted by people, I suppose. And I think it's only now I go, oh my God, I, you know, I, I, I interviewed David Bowie and I interviewed Lou Reed and, you know, I, you know, interviewed Supergrass in a bathroom and then went off to do, <laughs> it's just, I was always with Oasis, you know, it's, it's just all of these incredible experiences that, you know, you get and you you never, ever get again because that was a time in music where everything seemed to be happening in the UK. And 
we were right in the middle of it. You know, me and Jamie were right in the middle of it because it was like, it was one of the main, you know, places you could place music on TV and artists could talk. We interviewed everybody. It was, it was amazing. It was especially for a music fan. There's never been a show like it, I don't think. How did it turn into Top of the Pops for you? I think that was a sort of internal, I mean, it was when Chris Cowie turned up. Chris Cowie was at the White Room and Chris Cowie got the job. He was, I mean, he was involved. Chris Cowie's like, was a producer, is a producer, one of the best music producers in the country. And he had got the job of being the producer of Top of the Pops. The BBC were wanting to sort of, you know how they want to cross promote, you know how they, they get into their heads about stuff and then they, they sort of cross promote everything. And Chris got on board and I think it was that point, you know, he's a jewel, he, he's a Macam actually. And I'd known him and he said, and you know, he just went, kid, are you ready to do this? And I went, yeah. And, and that was it. And then I was, you know, and then I was doing it and, and it wasn't even something I could process because it was such a big show in my internal child's mind that I couldn't actually go, oh my God, I'm presenting Top of the Pops. You know, because it was, I, I don't think I would have been able to do it. Do you remember your first time? Oh my God, it was horrendous. So it wasn't Chris yet, it was somebody else doing it. And they made my hair really bad. You know that 90s hair where it's all sticking up and really bad, right? And it was awful. And I was wearing this horrible dress and I was holding the microphone, which is gold. And I was so nervous that you'd say my hand was shaking. <laughs> <laughs> who were you introducing do you remember not on my first one it's a blank chris i i, I in fact you've taken me back there you've re-traumatized me and i'm gonna have to get <laughs> severe remote therapy <laughs> were you still modeling at all at this time god no i mean that was a part of me that i've always i was always ashamed of you know because it was the 90s and i wanted to be taken seriously for what i did not for how i looked and that was something that I was always quite ashamed of. And it's only now that I can go, actually, you know, of course I did that. You know, it was the most rebellious thing I could have done. <laughs> it's moved in, like, you know, away and do some things like that. But also it was, it was of its time. At that time, how do you think you handled fame? Because you were so recognisable. Everyone knew who you were. You're so exaggerated. I think certain people at like certain places. So if I went to a uni bar, for example, and kids were into music, yes. If I went to Marks and Sparks, no. So I didn't really have any, I didn't really have any awareness of it because I think you have you learn to just block it out. It's, it wasn't until I was in places like festivals and people would be like, do, 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 you know, and it, it would get a bit much. But it wasn't, I, I think it really did affect me because I didn't know how to handle it. I was so young and I was really insecure at that, at that age. And so I didn't really know who I was and everybody else was telling me who I was. So it was a bit, you know, I think it is taken... It wasn't until I went out to India, I spent five years in India, um, and it wasn't until I was there and I realized how quiet it was because nobody was looking at me or nobody knew who I was. And I went, oh, that really does affect you. Oh, it does really affect you. And, and now I'm sort of, now I just, you know, it, it's not that, 
now it's like I'm just me. I don't really, if somebody recognises me, I just have a chat with them. It's like, it's normal. <laughs> Do you think there was any positive effects from, from that fame? I mean, it's what I always wanted. And I think, I think the thing is, if you're chasing fame for the sake of making yourself feel better, the minute you get it, and the minute you get everything you want, you realize that, and you can realize that that doesn't make you feel good. And then you realize it's actually, oh my God, there's something, then you feel like there's something wrong with me. And so then it's sort of, you have this sort of internal existential crisis and back then you don't know how to hold it. And so it's like, I mean, I think Jim Carrey said it brilliant. He said, I wish everybody could get money and fame and see that it's not that. And then you have to go looking for what is actually real in life because that's what I had to do. I had to go look, I had to go back and look for actually learn to love who I was inside rather than, you know, anything else, getting affirmation from the external. And so I think now when I'm working, I do it because I love it, not because I want anybody to recognize or you know, because I'm, I'm, it's a big sort of like, oh, everybody look at me. You, you annoyed me when I was a kid at school, you know, and, I, and, and now it's just, I am loving my life. When did you first do radio? First time I spoke on radio was Chris Evans' show. I rang up, he had a competition called Mark's Out of One. This was in the 90s, early 90s. And you had to ring up and give somebody a Mark Out of One. Right, so you'd ring up and give somebody. So I rang up and gave Axel Rose, and he said, "How many marks out of one?" And I said, "I give him one." That was the whole thing, right? <laughs> of its time. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> it was the early nineties. Shut up. Those were our ideas. <laughs> How did that turn into you doing your own show? Well, I just told you the story of the Ozone, but then I did the whole, because it was sort of cross-promoting, and I, and then I was at Radio 1, and they sort of, oh God, they just, I felt, I, I have no idea what happened there. They just put me on the air, like covering, for, and I'd never done radio. And I think that their theory was, well, you can do telly, so you can do radio, and it's two very different things. <laughs> And and I think back then as well, I think because radio is much more of an intimate medium than TV. And I think you have to really have some level of confidence. And, and, and also, I think I didn't really feel that confident in my voice. So I started there doing that. And then I went to Six Music. That's where I met you. You sort of like, you taught me how to use a desk. Yeah, it was uh, 2002 when Six Music started and it was soon after the start, wasn't it? Yeah, and then I was doing a show there called Music. It was a music news show, which was a really bad fit for me because I'm not a music journalist. The Music Week, wasn't it? it was yes, cool. but it was like, it, it wasn't. And then I would do like covers, but I've never had my own show show. I always wanted my own show show. So, with yeah. you know, because then you can sort of build yeah, we did a New Year's Eve show, if you remember, that together, didn't fun. we? That was fun. Yeah. I can't, I wouldn't want to hear it back, would you? No, I have got a copy. Shut up. I have, yeah. But no, I wouldn't want to hear it back. It was one of the, I was going to say the more tame of, of my New Year's Eves at that age, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember it being a lot of fun. Don't even go there. <laughs> DJ. Oh, DJ. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Right, Jane, time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here at my side. All of the questions are on 45, Steve's. You say when and I'll pull one out. When? <laughs> <laughs> what's your very finest moment in the spotlight interviewing David Bowie it was Madison Square Garden it was his 50th birthday I went to New York I stayed in the Soho Grand Hotel and David Bowie was playing a concert at Madison Square Garden he had all these favourite bands so Lou Reed was there they had you know Sonic Youth they had so many different people and uh, Placebo were there and I was standing in Madison Square Garden. David Bowie was on the stage with Lou Reed. They were sound checking Queen Bitch from uh, Hunky Dory. And I was the only person in there. And I went, this is it. That's insane. And then I interviewed him the next day in a coffee shop. What was it like to be with him? It was... It's going to make me cry. It's going to make me cry. That's what it was like. I was so young and I was so nervous and he was so kind. He listened because back then it was quite laddie, you know, and some boys would be quite, you know, he actually listened to me as a person and it was something that really stayed with me. It was something that really stayed with me. He spent time. He was present. It was incredible. It was incredible. That's an amazing answer to that question. Another question. Say when. When. Okay, so this is a song title question. It's the who. Who are you? Well, at my existential core, I am just love like you are, Chris. We are all joined together by that. We are just all the same. That's it. I am just all I do in life as I show up. I believe that we all have gifts and talents. Right, every single one of us, every single human being, and all we have to do is find that gift and talent and give it back to the world and make people. My job, what I think on the radio, is to just make people smile a bit. That's it. I don't want to be clever, even though I am funny, even though I am <laughs> modest, even though I am modest. You know, I'm humble, humble. <laughs> you know me, humble. <laughs> yeah. But I do believe, you know, like joking aside, I do believe that is, I just want to, who I am is just, I'm all of those things that I always was, that insecure little girl, but I'm also this powerful, strong woman who 
knows what she wants to do in the world and loves being alive. Are you who you always wanted to be? Yes. And finally, becoming the woman I was always meant to be. I was finally becoming the person I suppose other people could see and I couldn't. Do you love Virgin Radio? Cool. Virgin Radio is, is literally, I mean, I told you, I took my boss out last night to say thank you for, because I love my job so much. I was, I was like, have more cake, I love you. Like literally, it is, you know, there was a there was a feeling back in the early 90s at GLR, right? And GLR had some of the most incredible people come through its doors. You know, you had Chris Evans, you had Danny Baker at the time, you had Chris Morris, is it, was there? So you had all these incredible people, you know, Gary Crowley, I think still there, bless him. But, you know, it, it was this thing. And I think with Virgin Radio, it is becoming, it is this family. We're a small team and we are becoming this sort of like, we are a family and it is a family and they have nurtured me and and helped me grow. I got to the station and I just, I was like, I just want to be the best. I just want to be the best I can be. And they have really, really helped me. And I just, I just love it. I love my job. I had a moment yesterday. I was playing, I can't remember what I was playing. I think I was playing, I can't remember, but I was singing at the top of my voice, right? And so the studio is on the 17th floor um, in the News UK building. And you see right across London, you see right down to the Downs, down in the South, right? I stopped singing and I just looked around and I went, this is my life. Because we never do that. We actually just go, it's a job and da, 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 da. And I didn't. I went, this is my life. This is incredible. I do a job that I love for a living. That is an honour. You've done so much TV, um, but it seems, you know, you, you said we haven't seen each other for a long time. This is the happiest I think I've ever known you. I, I am really happy. Yeah, I've done a lot of work on myself. I mean, you know what I was like. I was out of control, you know, I wasn't well, you know. And, and you know, I got sober and I cleaned up and then I did a lot of work on myself. And I went out to India for five years. So I, I, I've done the work. And regardless of anything... And and I remember when I came back from India, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was going to train to be a psychotherapist. And um, and I, and then I just realized that I missed music and I just wanted my life back because I thought I did it the first time. I didn't really enjoy it because of where I was at in my life. And so now every single moment, I'm just like, this is the best thing in the world. How significant is being sober, do you think? It's the bedrock of my life, being sober. Being sober is the, if I did not have that, it would be game over. Everything, every single thing I have in life is because I'm sober. Every single thing, I have to put my sobriety before everything else. That's the most important thing. Because that, from there, I can build my base. And to be perfectly honest, the first five years, when you're getting clean, you, you're still not, you know, you're not well, you know, you just, uh, and then I think with five years sober, you sort of like, there's something they say, you know, they say your head comes out your ass, that's what they say, you know, but you, you sort of literally go, oh my God, I'm alive. And I think the next five are spent going, 
I, I don't know how to do anything because you wake up and you're an adult. And then I think now I'm 15 years. And so now I'm like, you know, oh, look, I'm actually an adult. I have a job and everything. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> do you still do Jane's Disco? I do Jane's Disco once a day. What a great course. <laughs> Back into the box, Jane, for another question. Question three, say when. When? What do you wish wasn't on your CV? Oh, being a pastry girl. Come on, I was a teenage pastry girl. Let's not beat around the bush. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. Is it embarrassing now? Do you know what? When I look at those pictures, I don't sit around looking at the bloody pictures, but, what, you know, I, when I... <laughs> When I did that, I moved. And so I got this like portfolio of the cutting and I looked and I, it's like, it makes me quite sad because the girl I was, she thought she knew, knew everything. And actually I was so naive. And also there's a part of me that's sort of not, I'm not proud of it. But also I'm starting to own it and go, actually, of course I did that. <laughs> that was going to piss off as many people as possible. <laughs> and there was a part that was always going to do that. <laughs> I've never been one to do things the easy way, you know? I'm, no. I sort of jump into the fire. And so if I didn't go to university, I did that. If you want to get an education, work around people like that and you literally learn about life pretty quickly. So, you know, when I then had to go into a room, the first band I ever interviewed were the Chili Peppers who were like, you know, it's like herding cats, getting them into one room, you know, with rock stars. And I had to do that. I was like 24. But because I've had all this experience of like really dodgy blogs, you know, who I always have boundaries with, I was like, how weird, and I could just arrange them. that's got to be a good chapter for the book that you might one day write herding the chili peppers or i was a teenage page three girl i love that i'm not gonna use it it's just gonna piss people off with it (laughs) back into the box question four say when i'll pull another one out when how do you prepare i guess that's for your radio show and on the I mean, you know, I've got a little book that I keep ideas in. So I'll walk down the street and I'll just like write an idea down. And then I'll sort of like, if I think it's anything, I'll develop it. Or I like usually just watch Instagram in the morning, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) What a lesson for young aspiring DJs. No, basically what I do is I have a little ideas book. And I go down and everything, every single time something hits me as interesting or weird or unusual or just an idea that pops in my head, I just write it down. And so I've got a book that I can always go to and I'll look through it if I've got nothing and I'll go, oh, that's something. And then I will develop it out into, oh, right, that goes there and that's there. And what about this? And then it just becomes bigger and broader and wider. And that's what I do. I like the way that you tell stories on the radio and I they always sound I always think that they're very well structured. You know where you're going, right? We always have to have an out. 
That's what they taught me. I think when I started at Virgin Radio, so when I started at Virgin Radio, when I came back, I worked at this really small station called Panda Radio, right? Nobody was listening, which was brilliant because I could just, and I was, I was producing myself. I was picking the songs. I was doing the whole thing. And I would, li- I mean, honestly, Chris, I would talk for longer than the song. <laughs> and Oh, I can believe that. I mean, seriously. And so I think once I got to Virgin, you know, they've really worked with me because I think I at one point couldn't understand, well, there's only that many links per hour. I can't, I can't do it like that. And I would never have an out. I would sort of just wind around the houses and tell a story that would become a different story that would become a different story. And before I knew it, I didn't know what I was talking about. So, <laughs> so you horn. And I think for that, you can't do that alone. In my experience, I needed help. And the people who helped me were Virgin Red. You got Nick Daly, who is the best in the business at this. Mike Cass, who has been you know instrumental in my growth and just supported me. And it's people like this who they will go through a show. And, you know, Nick was always like, you know, we go through my my sort of shores and he'd be like and I'd be going oh it's so long and he's going yeah there's another minute and a half (laughs) 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 and and then he's like where's your out so they just slowly gently trained me to become good I suppose become because I think I'm not saying I'm good I don't class myself as that you know somebody like for me, you, you know, I look at you, you've been doing this for years. Do you know what I mean? And I look at you and you're like a DJ. I, I, I to be honest, I, I don't know what the measure of, you know, that good thing of someone, you know, it's a hard gauge, isn't it? Well, I think, I think especially, you know, because I think there's only a weird, like it's, let's, let's just say it really simply. We talk in between songs, but th- there's a weird that. I can only do it. There, there are certain things that I can do a link and it would only be me doing it. If I just said something generic, anybody could do it. But I think what what I've learned over the years is I think there is a talent you need to have to do a job like this, but you can't just have talent. You also have to learn skill. So you can actually learn the skill very easily. But to be really good, you need both of those things working as equal. So you need to always be working on the skill and you always need to like hold the talent or because I always say this, you know, I have, I'm quite fiery and I can either burn the house down or I can light, I can actually warm the world up there. And that's the two things. And and you have to learn to hold it. Yeah, warmth is definitely a, a word I think that's very important when it comes to radio presenters. I think, and I'm just thinking this off the top of my head based on what you've said, uh, there's something about personalising that punchline because anyone can write a joke, however good or bad it might be, but it's somehow delivering that in a way that's unique to you. It has to be because anybody can go, that was, this is, oh, aren't Oasis great? Do you know what I mean? But not everybody can have a tick that I would have on it, you know, because, you know, I could, I could, I'm lucky because I've had all these experiences so I can bring that in. But also there are certain ways that I think about music that, you know, are just me. 
And it's it's like every single person, we, we, we can only be the best version of ourselves. And I think that's the thing we try and do every day when we turn up. And some days, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm feeling too tired. And, you know, some days it's just, you keep it quite simple and you strip it back and you have, especially doing a daily show, I think I'm still getting into the swing of it. It's, it's very different doing weekends, for example. Yes, uh, stuff doesn't happen every day that you, you can then talk about. I remember when I worked at a talk station for a while, there was a guy who was really struggling to find stuff to talk about. And he was pretty much on purpose tripping over on the way into the studio so that he could say a funny thing <laughs> happened to him on the on the way in. Back into the box, Jane, okay. for your final question. Okay. When? Okay, your fifth and final question from the box. What do you still want to do? Wow. You've completely thrown me. I've got your CV in front of me, and it starts here with the White Room in 1995, followed by the Ozone, Top of the Pops, hosting Glastonbury. Doing the Big Breakfast, doing shows like Nevermind the Buzzcocks, hosting Robot Wars, Celebrity Masterchef, which you won. Uh, you're now a daily host on Virgin Radio doing the afternoon show on Virgin Radio. What the hell does Jane Middlemiss still want to do? I am really, really happy where I am. There isn't one thing I'm chasing anymore. And I think that is why I'm the happiest I've ever been. Because every time I turn up at my job, I'm present and I'm aware of what an incredible time it is to be at Virgin Radio because there will be a time where that will be my last show I do there. So I want to enjoy every moment. So the word that the question, what do I want to do? I want to do my job because I love it. You touched on the five years that you spent in India. Do you think you'll ever have the urge or perhaps even need to do something like that again? No, I needed to do that for myself. I will go back to India. It's somewhere where I feel at home and I think I'm going off for Navaratri this this October, but only for a couple of weeks just to ground myself again. No, I'm really lucky, Chris. I've came, I've come through a lot, you know? I, I could have, I could have died, you know? The, the, you know, addiction is not, is not, an illness that is, it's not like having a cold. It kills people. I was there for some of that time with you, you know? I know you were. And I I just want to thank you because you were always my friend. Not at all. I love you, Jane. I love you too. Um, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I, I, I mean that so from, you know, the very bottom of my heart. Um, we had some special times. I've got one last question for you. Yeah. It's the end of the world. No, oh. don't don't let don't let that send that send you over the edge. Um, you have to play the last three records on Earth. <laughs> what would those three records be? Nirvana, smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Uh, I just play that three times to be honest. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> That's <laughs> the first time anyone's ever suggested doing that, but you know what? I'll take it. 
what what's what comp- you, that's the end of the world what else do i want to fucking hear nirvana smells like tea spirit again 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 <laughs> 50 minutes of Nirvana sounds good um, Jane thank you so much and that was How to DJ How to DJ How to DJ thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from <laughs>